you have Bibles, uh, Ecclesiastes, we're continuing on in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 2 this morning, black hardcover Bibles under those seats, it's going to be page 553, 553. Uh, There's a story about a man who lived in Manchester, England in the early 1800s, and he goes to visit a doctor. He's constantly been frightened, he's constantly been sick, depressed, he's unable to find happiness uh, in anything. And he confesses to the doctor during this appointment he's even been suicidal. Upon examination, uh, the doctor can find nothing that is physically wrong with this man. So he encourages him to uh, get out and enjoy himself. Go enjoy a little bit of what life has to offer. Specifically, uh, there's a circus that's recently come to town. And he suggests that this man go to that circus and see Grimaldi, the clown, uh, in the circus. He's the funniest man alive, the doctor says. And the patient hears him say that and is silent for a moment. And then, in an even more helpless and downcast tone, turns to the doctor and says, I am Grimaldi. So many of the prescriptions that we offer for a good life, uh, for a better life, fall completely flat. In our search for meaning, in our search for purpose and happiness and satisfaction, when one pursuit comes up empty, what we then immediately do is grasp for another. And for a time, the novelty of this new grasp, this next pursuit, might appear to be the answer. Until, like Grimaldi the clown, the only prescription left is the very thing we've already achieved, the very thing we're already known for and therefore have come to know the emptiness of in a deeply personal way. So we prescribe laughter, and the funniest among us truly are the saddest. We prescribe wisdom, and the wisest among us are the most vexed. We prescribe wealth, and as story after story will tell you, the wealthiest people among us are the unhappiest. We prescribe work, And the hardest working, most successful among us are the least fulfilled. This is no crisis of our modern era. It's a crisis as old as humanity itself. And as we continue this series in Ecclesiastes, this ancient biblical book of wisdom literature, we track this preacher king's quest to find purpose, to find satisfaction in anything and everything, as he says, under the sun. We already know his conclusion, because as we read last week, he states it up front. All is vanity. All is meaningless. Uh, All is smoke. And this morning, as we make our way through chapter two, he's going to step us through some of the process that it took to arrive at that conclusion. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Ecclesiastes chapter two, beginning in verse one. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. 
I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there was more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Verse 18, I hated my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all, of which, of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Guide us, O oh God, by your word and by your spirit, that this morning in your light we may see light, that in your truth we may find freedom, and that in your will we might discover your peace, which surpasses all understanding. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So in this text, uh, Koheleth, this preacher king, details three aspects of his quest and of his conclusion. The vanity of wisdom, the vanity of pleasure, and the vanity of work. And we'll step through each of those three things with the rest of our time. So first, the vanity of wisdom. Uh, chapter two actually begins with Koheleth's pursuit of pleasure, 
Uh, but if we were to back up into the end of chapter 1 where we were last week, the actual first part of his quest, the first thing he tries, is wisdom. And by wisdom here, he means uh, wisdom and knowledge, intellect, apart from, as Proverbs would say it, the fear of the Lord. Knowledge and learning and intellect apart from a reverence and a worship and a fear of God. He's talking about the, the intellectual pursuit of searching out all that our minds can know. Because we, uh, those of us who have been in the church for a long time, those of us who are Christians, because we know and often associate wisdom with a God-centered paradigm, and because Koholeth's quest here that he details in the book is really a quest of the best that life can offer outside of that paradigm, what, it, it might be helpful for you to think about this instead of the word wisdom by saying the vanity of learning or the vanity of education. Now there is great value in learning. There's great value in education. That's why it is in our day and has been for centuries often suggested as the primary solution or a primary solution to the biggest problems we face in our world. If only people had access to better or more education, then we, we assume uh, there would be no wars. There would be no poverty. There would be no bigotry or racism. But Koholeth says, this kind of wisdom comes up woefully short. Look back for just a moment, chapter 1, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. He's saying there that there's a limit to what this kind of wisdom, what education and learning can achieve. And it can't actually get at the deepest root, at the source of the problem. As pastor and author Sinclair Ferguson writes, it cannot untangle the twists in the human heart. It cannot make up for what is lacking in the soul. Perhaps, Ferguson writes, Koholeth too had noticed that some of the most intelligent and well-educated individuals are among the saddest and most tortured of people. Indeed, Koholeth had noticed that, which is why he ends chapter one on that very note. He writes, in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Does anybody remember uh, those short PSA commercials? They ran for at least a couple decades, and they still might today. Um, mainly on NBC, although maybe they were elsewhere. The more you know. Anybody remember these short PSAs? Uh, it'd be like a charming, charismatic personality, sometimes a celebrity. Uh, they would offer a tidbit of knowledge uh, and then there would be this graphic of a rainbow and a star that would appear over their head. And this little jingle like, boo, 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 boo. Does that ring a bell? Does that ring a bell? Okay, Koalef makes a terrible writer for that, for the more you know. Like imagine this, vexation, sorrow, misery. The more you know. The more you know. And he carries the same line of thought forward into the middle of chapter 2. He looks at this as he says from all sides, not only the value of wisdom, but he flips it around. What about the value of folly or madness? And for a brief moment in verse 13, it sounds like maybe he's found an answer. There's more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. Great news. Except, before we can even catch our breath, verse 14 continues, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. So wisdom is a better path than folly, 
But, he says, it doesn't prevent death. You're still going to die. And the mixed bag is that though it's an infinitely better way than folly, your wisdom in all of those years or however many or few there are between now and the day you inevitably die will be full of additional vexation and suffering if you have wisdom. And then, to top it all off, you'll all be forgotten anyway. The more you know. And this realization hits Koholeth hard. It will do the same thing to us if we're willing to honestly engage that thought. Verse 17, so I hated life because, of what, because what was done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after win. That's strong language. I hated life. It was grievous. If we are willing to confront realities as he is, life is often disappointing. Life is often bitter. And when something fails us, and comes up short, as wisdom has failed Koholeth. We tend to react very strongly against it. So we can hate it with the same amount of passion as which we loved it five seconds ago. And we're all a little bit like addicts in that sense. I would love a drink. I need a drink. I would love a fix. I need a fix. I would love that form of sexual gratification. And when the five-second high wears off, it leaves us emptier than before and we hate the alcohol and we hate the drug and we hate the sex or the person we just objectified with an intense kind of hatred until we want it again. There's something bitter about this reality that the wise and the fool meet the same end. What then is the point of living wisely? What is the point of all the effort that we go through that he went through to acquire wisdom and knowledge? That's exactly, if you feel that, that's exactly his discovery. He's saying there is no point. And as Peter Barnes puts it, the pursuit of wisdom sounds noble, but in one sense, it is like carving statues out of smoke. It is like carving statues out of smoke. And just as this pursuit of wisdom is revealed to be smoke, ultimately, so too is the pursuit of pleasure. So second, let's talk about that, the vanity of pleasure. Where, where wisdom is the intellectual pursuit, pleasure is really a series of non-intellectual pursuits. Come now, enjoy yourself, he says. It's a self-indulgent form of pleasure. Uh, do what you want, do what appeals to you. And these first 11 verses of chapter 2 detail for us a number of things that appeal not only to Koholeth in his day, but really appeal to us in our day. So for one, there's the pleasure of laughter, or by close extension, the pleasure of entertainment. Laugh it off. Uh, don't be so serious. Take a more lighthearted approach to life. If you don't already see this everywhere around you in our society, if you start to look for it, you will find it everywhere. Uh, songs, TV shows, bumper stickers, Don't Worry, Be Happy was a really popular song even a couple decades ago. Um, if you like animals, if you're an animal lover, Wag More, Bark Less. I'm sure some of you have seen that somewhere. Uh, or just very simply stated, and if you ever get a chance to ask him about it, our elder Will Kenny's absolute favorite, Life is Good. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. That mentality, Koala says here, is madness. 
It's madness at best, at best. You're not paying attention and you will be woefully unprepared for suffering and tragedy when it comes. At worst, you're delusional and you start to sound like a lunatic, like a speaker at one of my wife's former jobs who refused to open emails from a friend who was dying because opening the emails would create more negative energy in the world. God help us if we reach that point. God help us before we reach that point where we wouldn't engage with a dying friend because it's going to create more negative energy in the world somehow. Later in chapter 7, Kohala is going to pick up on the same thought and he's going to say, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting or the house of mirth. Why? As Sinclair, as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, most of the time, consider this, most of the time, laughter is simply empty. Watch even a clean comedy, Ferguson says, on television or on the stage. Compare the after effect with that of watching a tragedy. The difference has been well recognized. Comedy is light. Tragedy is weighty. Comedy is superficial, but a good tragedy is able to produce a catharsis of the emotions like a medicine that cleanses pollutants out of the system and makes it function properly again. If you're inclined, if you see that inclination in your own life to believe that laughter is the best medicine, as the saying goes, what I would encourage you to do is make time soon to watch a good tragedy. Watch a good tragedy. Go on an emotional cleanse, so to speak. If you're inclined to keep it lighthearted all the time, then what I would encourage you to do is not fly a life is good flag outside your house. Sit across a fire pit from a friend who is suffering from cancer and burn a life is good flag together. And let the tears that come to your eyes cleanse your sight so that you might see reality a little more clearly. Koholeth attempts to cheer himself with another pleasure after laughter falls short. And it's wine. And here again, he comes up empty. It's not that wine itself is bad, but it's easy for him or for us to look to wine or to food or any other kind of substance for something to provide something more than it ever can. Our pursuits of pleasure are almost always different forms of escapism. So we encounter the brokenness of the world. We encounter the heaviness of the world and we don't like it. So we try to escape it in one of a thousand different ways. Now the paradox, of course, is that by attempting to avoid or to keep that that real suffering far from us, what we end up doing is creating all kinds of additional and unnecessary suffering on top of it. So ask an alcoholic, ask a drug addict how much of an escape they've actually found. Because to a person, they will tell you they've not found an escape at all. They've just found a deeper dungeon. As he continues recounting, the preacher king goes through some other things. He sought pleasure in accomplishment. So he's made all these great works, houses and vineyards and gardens and parks and pools. Uh, He sought pleasure in possessions, male and female slaves, herds and flocks. He sought pleasure in wealth, and he'll return to that in chapter 5. Silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. And he sought pleasure in sex. Many concubines, as he says, the delight of the children of man. The key line comes in verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Now think about this. Imagine 
how many additional broken pieces there would be to pick up in our lives if that were true of you and me. There have been times in my life where I've gotten what I wanted and it was a disaster. There are many more times where if I had gotten what I wanted, I didn't, it would have been even more of a disaster. And in some of those moments, it was not a depth of Christian conviction or a depth of a God-centered view of the world that stopped me. What was it? It was my own limitations or my circumstances. I didn't have the money or I didn't have the opportunity. I wasn't especially skilled with the ladies in high school. And I look back on that now and I say, well, thank God, because if I had been, that would have been disastrous for me and a lot of other people. This Kohalas quest is a quest unconstrained by the obstacles that confine the rest of us. So even in the ways that you have embarked on a quest like his, even if you're immersed in that quest right now in your life to find satisfaction in self-indulgent pleasure, no one in this room has even remotely close to the free time and the resources and the opportunities that he does. And yet, with no obstacles, with no constraints, he has come up all the more empty all the more empty. In none of these things does he find lasting satisfaction. Scottish poet Robert Burns once penned this. He said, pleasures are like poppies spread. You seize the flower, the bloom is shed. Or like the snow falls in the river, a moment white then melts forever. Or like the rainbow's lovely form vanishing amid the storm. Koholeth knows that reality really well. The more that we lay hold of self-indulgent pleasures, the less we are satisfied. And you'll read any number of stories about this if you start to look into it. Ernest Hemingway is one. Ernest Hemingway knew this truth as well. He was a hedonist, pursued pleasure, whatever he wanted, and he got most of what he wanted. But he was miserable. And before he ended up taking his own life, he described his experience in his work, The Old Man and the Sea, he described it as a fisherman who finally hauls in this prized marlin, which has been the aim of his pursuit for years, decades, only to have most of that marlin eaten by sharks on the voyage back to the shore. There is a moment here where Koholeth does find pleasure in his toil, in his great works. He says in the second half of verse 10 that his heart finds pleasure, and this was his reward for all of his work, but notice how fleeting it is. Immediately afterward, he continues, then I considered what my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Would we learn it from him so that we don't have to keep learning it ourselves? Fleeting is the satisfaction that comes from the pursuit of pleasure. Even when that pleasure is something good, like work. And this vanity of toil, this vanity of work is the third theme that he picks up on and expands upon in this text. So third, let's consider the vanity of work. By the time uh, that we get to verse 18, Kohala's perspective on his work and his toil has shifted pretty drastically. So follow this. Verse 10, pleasure in it, to immediately after, vanity, down to verse 18, I hated my toil with which I toil under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. 
According to the Williams Group, which is a, a wealth consultancy in the United States, 70% of wealthy families lose that wealth by the second generation. And by the third generation, it goes up to 90%. So statistically, even if you, even if we are among the people that have any significant amount of money to leave to the people that come after us, we are far more likely to leave it to a fool than to a wise person. I'm like, did he just insult my kids? <laughs> kind of, but mine too, right? We're much more likely to leave it to a fool than a wise person. And even if it does survive the third generation, who's to say about the fourth and the fifth? This is why Koholeth hates work, and it's why you and I will hate work if all we're in it for is wealth creation or wealth preservation. And not only are there implications here for legacy, uh, how we think about inheritance and the kinds of money or other things we would leave to our family, I think there's also important implications about how fired up we get about things like welfare and how fired up we get about things like taxation. And we don't have time to unpack all that this morning. Here's all I want to say about it. By all means, vote, advocate for your views here. Just as wisdom is far better than folly, I think there are ways that are far better than others. And I have my own convictions about that. But know this, whether you end up giving your money to the government or giving it to your own children, there is a solid possibility it will be squandered away. Makes another great demotivational poster, right? Your hard-earned money, someone's going to waste it. Someone's going to waste it. And ultimately, we have just unbelievably little control over that. So I guess we better spend it all on ourselves, except, oh crap, he already discovered pleasure and self-indulgence to a degree that none of us can ever experience doesn't do it either. So congratulations, here's the conclusion it gets to, congratulations, you're going to work really hard, it won't satisfy, the fruits of it won't satisfy, and the wealth will disappear within a few short years after you die along with any memory of you. We need to consider this, honestly. We need to think about this when we are prone to put in all those extra hours of work at the office. We need to think about this when we work all those extra hours on house projects or whatever your energies and efforts, the hours of your labor and toil go to. That was convicting for me this week. My day off typically is Tuesday. I'm home with my kids. I spent most of this Tuesday trying to check off house projects off this list that's been building over the past months. And then I come in on Wednesday morning and the first thing I do is reread Ecclesiastes 2. And it was like, what was that all for? What was that all for? Out of all the aspects of what Koholeth has detailed thus far in his quest, this is easily the one that I am most prone to, to believe the lie that there can be satisfaction found in this. Um, not for the wealth creation so much. I picked the wrong line of work or at least the wrong theological tribe uh, for that to be the case. But certainly for the sense of satisfaction that hard work and accomplishment can bring. But it's fleeting. And you know this well, and just in case you've been curious, this is not something that pastors and ministry leaders are exempt from. Verse 23 has applied to me very often as it perhaps has applied to you. Days full of sorrow, work of vexation, even in the night a restless heart. A little while back, I remember a particularly vexed and also self-pitying kind of moment and I was venting to Shay, my wife, 
And I just kind of burst out like, well, I work hard today just so I can work hard tomorrow. Anybody else been there? Kind of channeled your inner coalesce? Like I'm just on the treadmill, I'm working hard so I can work hard tomorrow. Fortunately, and, and if you're blessed with a spouse like this, it's really helpful. Shay doesn't let me get away with my own self-pity parties. Uh, she is often the one, and we need these people in our lives who re-inject a God-centered view of the world into the moments where I am prone to act like he is either absent or inconsequential. I don't remember uh, her exact words in that moment, but when I said, I work hard today just so I can work hard tomorrow, her response was to the tune of, that sounds like exactly like it's supposed to be. And it's almost as if Koholeth has this kind of moment with himself in verse 24. And you'll see this as we go through Ecclesiastes, you'll see this several times. Remember, this is his quest. His conclusion that he stated up front is that all is vanity. But what we'll see at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes is that that conclusion, all is vanity, that's his proximate conclusion, not his ultimate one. His ultimate one, the book ends, the conclusion of the matter, as he puts it, saying that God is there. The reality of God. God is there, and he will bring into judgment every deed, whether good or evil. So in a number of different moments of Ecclesiastes, we see this ultimate conclusion of the existence of God breaking into the quest where he's acting as if that's not the case. And that's what's happening here at the end of chapter 2. The best that we can do apart from God is to try to find enjoyment and eat and drink and enjoy our work because tomorrow we die. That's the best we can do. But the ability, and he, he sees this in the moment as he's writing that, the ability to truly enjoy these things, if eating and drinking and work can ever be sources of actual joy and actual satisfaction, that's only going to be possible if they are received from the hand of God. And so here we get a small taste, just a small one, because it's been a discouraging chapter if you've been paying attention a small taste of ultimate reality and the difference it actually makes if God is at the center of things. And it's the difference between the sweetness of a gift and the bitterness of a grasp. Kohalas' entire quest and ours that mirror his, it's a constant grasping. It's a desperate reaching and striving and labor to create meaning and to create purpose in life. And at times, as we've seen, he thinks that he's found it. But when he tries to hold on to it for more than a moment, he finds that just like smoke, it goes right through his fingers, slips right through his fingers. If our lives and pursuits are a grasp, we too will come up empty. We too, like Koholeth, will wind up embittered, hating our work, hating the very things we were convinced would be the answer, hating, as he even says, life itself. If, however, our lives, our pursuits are a gift, that changes absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. Why? A grasp originates within ourselves. A gift must be received. It must come from the outside of ourselves, which means that there must be someone or something powerful enough, good enough, outside of myself that is able to give me good gifts so that I can receive them. And seeking to create meaning is very different from receiving the meaning that's already been put there. It's the difference between trying to stand on the air and between breathing the air in. 
It's the difference between trying to stand on the air and breathing the air in. With the former, we fall to our death. Try to stand on the air, you'll fall to your death. With the latter, you receive life. You receive life. Back in verse 12, Koholeth offers this great insight. If this is true for the king, what about the rest of us? What about the rest of us? The reach of his grasp is as broad as anyone who's ever lived. And moreover, he has succeeded in obtaining all of the things that he's reached for. He sought wisdom, he got it. He sought laughter and wine, he got them. He sought accomplishment and possessions and money and sex and all of these things he obtained. And it only proved to him the complete insufficiency of grasping. What is Koholeth really looking for? What are we really looking for when we embark on a quest like his? The answer is salvation. An answer to life. Relief and rescue from an existence that feels so otherwise pointless and empty. But this is an important truth about the reality of the world. Genuine salvation is never obtained by our grasping and striving. It's never obtained by our grasping and our striving. It is accomplished, but not by us. And there is a quest that creates and imparts true meaning and purpose to life, but it is not our quest. It is not a quest that we embark upon. It is God's own quest to redeem and to restore his good creation that sin has broken and fractured. And our role is to receive that for the gift that it is, to see the fulfillment of this quest. So many centuries after Koholeth penned these words, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, he accomplishes what we in our quest never can. Only when we have been stripped of everything else and we have hit that bedrock of the reality of God are we prepared to truly, functionally, trust in and to receive the salvation that he offers through Jesus. And apart, and from this bedrock then, and from this bedrock begins a rebuilding on a sure and on a better foundation. We can begin to see, to receive the true meaning and purpose that God has imparted to wisdom and God has imparted to the pleasures of life and God has imparted to work when we receive those things from his hand. There is, take heart if you are discouraged reading Ecclesiastes 2, there is great meaning in all of these things, but we cannot create that meaning. We can only receive it. So, may you, may we forsake our grasping that we might receive the gifts of the God who is there. Amen. Let me pray for us. God in heaven, only true God, only wise, we ask that you would break through the fog, the smoke of our quest and you would reveal to us that we wouldn't have to get all the way down to the end of the road as Koholeth did to realize the vanity of it. That our, that our bitterness when we come up empty in the pursuits of our lives would lead us to hit that bedrock, would lead us to crash upon that bedrock, that it would be in your mercy and grace and opening up of our eyes to see you there and to begin to rebuild on a sure and better foundation. Forgive us 
for convincing ourselves that grasping at anything is our answer. May we instead look to you and receive from your hand the good gifts that you offer, none greater than the one we come to this table now to celebrate the life and the death and the resurrection of your only son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.